Christ is risen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to spend some time seeing just exactly why Easter is such a great feast. And we'll start by giving it some context. Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, our Lord came up to Jerusalem from Bethany. Bethany means the house of ripe figs. It's the home of Martha, Mary Magdalene, and Lazarus. And it's also where during all of Holy Week, our Lord will return to spend the night. Until, of course, Holy Thursday when he's captured. So our Lord comes up to Jerusalem from Bethany, the house of ripe figs. And on the way, he travels through Bethphage. Now, Bethphage is a, a, means the house of unripe green figs. So what? Well, keep in mind that God never acts without a purpose. His every action is pregnant with meaning. So what does all this mean? If we turn back the clock a ways before Holy Week, we'll see that earlier in his public ministry, our Lord had warned the multitudes, unless you repent, you will all perish. And immediately after that warning, he told them a parable. I quote, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, Let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. Now the multitude certainly knew exactly what our Lord was speaking about in this parable. He's warning them to bring forth fruits of repentance. In the parable, the man who owns the vineyard symbolizes God the Father. The vine dresser symbolizes Christ our Lord. The fig tree symbolizes the Jewish people, which of course our Lord spent some three and a half years trying to get them to bring forth good fruits. So with all that as background, and keeping in mind that our Lord never acts without a purpose, that his every action is pregnant without meaning, it's easy to see what the Lord is symbolically telling the people by his path into Jerusalem during Holy Week. It's easy to understand the meaning there. So what's the meaning of his path into Jerusalem? Our Lord's coming up from Bethany, the house of ripe figs, a town where he has found fruits of repentance in such people as Mary Magdalene and Martha and Lazarus. And then he's passing through Bethphage, the house of unripe green figs, on his way into the holy city. It's a symbolic warning. It's a symbolic warning. And the day after Palm Sunday, as he comes up to Jerusalem again through Bethphage, he stops and searches for fruit on that fig tree. It's not the season for figs. He certainly knows that. He knows everything. Why would he stop and search for figs on a fig tree then if he knows it's not the season? His every action is pregnant with meaning. So when he searches the fig tree for fruit and finds none, he curses it, and then it withers. 
and it dies. It's a symbolic and a very frightening ending to that parable. He sought fruit on the fig tree and found none. Just as for three and a half years he's been seeking good fruit from his people. And he hasn't found what he's been looking for. That ought to give each one of us pause. Because as Catholics, as members of the one true church, our Lord has, been, has the same sort of message for each of us as he did for the multitudes of the Jews. He's been coming to look for fruits of repentance in our lives during this past holy season of Lent. And he's warned each of us time and time again, unless you repent, you will surely perish. And just as our Lord used his path into Jerusalem and a fig tree to warn the Jewish people of his collective judgment of them, so also he has given us Catholics very clear indications of his collective judgment of us. We'll just consider two. First, at the eighth station of the cross, our Lord says to the weeping women, Don't weep for me. Weep for your children. For there will come a time when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. In other words, he's telling the women they should weep for the people that live in that time. The time when our Lord will again come looking for fruit. Fruit of the womb. Babies. But instead of finding those fruits, you'll find people who say, blessed are the barren. You'll find people who think it's actually better to not have children. To be sterilized. To contracept. Or even to abort those fruits. He's telling those women to wait for the people who are not bringing forth the fruits he expects to weep for the people in that time. And I don't think you need me to tell you that we live in that time. Second, our Lord is also giving Catholics a very clear indication of his collective judgment on us by the state of his church. As St. John Eudes explains, quote, the most evident mark of God's anger, the most terrible castigation he can inflict upon the world, are manifested when he permits his people to fall into the hands of clergy who are priests more in name than in deed. When God permits such things, it is a very positive proof that he is thoroughly angry with his people and visiting his most dreadful anger upon them. Close quote. God's warning us. Collectively, as a Catholic people, he's thoroughly angry with us. He's thoroughly angry with us. That's the bad news. Man, it is bad news. It's really bad news. And if it simply ended there, it would be cause for great despair. Because it is bad news, that's for sure. 
But there's good news. That's what the word gospel means, is the good news. And the gospel teaches us that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, if we bring forth fruits of repentance, if we bring forth good fruits, we'll become holy. We'll become pleasing to God if we bring forth good fruits. Words aren't enough. We saw that during Holy Week. As our Lord enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're literally, literally singing his praises. And yet only five days later, they're clamoring for his crucifixion and crying out that they have no king but Caesar. Those were his people. Those were the members of the one true church. So words are not enough. We have to repent from the heart. We have to embrace everything he teaches. All of it. We have to be willing to suffer whatever it takes to get to heaven. Words are not enough. We need to commit ourselves to holiness. It has to come from the heart out. We need to do it. Each one of us, individually. Don't have any illusions. Our leadership in the church and the state is pretty much in the same condition as it was in those days. Which means, for the most part, they're not necessarily going to be a lot of help. And to top it off, we're in the midst of a full-on cultural assault right now. Every year before Easter, we see exactly the same thing. Every year, without exception, before Easter, and Christmas too for that matter, the mainstream media, just to use one example, always trots out these stories attacking our Lord and His church. I intended to give a few examples. They aren't hard to find. But every one of them this year was so blasphemous, I can't even mention them from the pulpit. And there's gobs of them. Every one of the attacks, bar one that I saw this week, were directed against Christ's church, the Catholic church. We all know this. It's nothing new. Happens every year. Now, does anyone here actually think this is accidental? That every year during these two holy seasons, right before the great feast, these sort of stories come out in the media that attack our Lord and His church. Of course it's not accidental. So why do we see this every year before the great feast? What's going on here? That's worth really pondering on. We can bring it into focus if we consider something that happened years ago in response to the release of Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. As some of you may recall, some really priceless responses to the film came from Abraham Foxman. Now at the time, he was the director of the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL. Abraham Foxman, quote, The film, from our perspective, unambiguously from beginning to end, blames the death of Jesus on the bloodthirsty, vengeful Jews and absolves the peaceful, loving, kind, warm, sensitive Pontius Pilate and the Romans, close quote. Well, now let's get real. 
There is, it's impossible for a sane human being to watch that film, like the scene of the scourging, for example, and think that the Romans are portrayed as, quote, peaceful, loving, kind, warm, and sensitive, close quote. I mean, seriously? That is hard to watch. Or consider this gem, Abraham Foxman, quote, the showing of the passion throughout the ages was a precursor for pogroms and persecution. And this film would in several months project the passion in its Middle Ages milieu to more people than would have seen or witnessed the passion play for almost 2,000 years. It will fuel hatred, bigotry, and anti-Semitism, close quotes. Now years, literally years, have come and gone, and in that time, millions upon millions of people have seen the passion of the Christ. Can someone give me a count on how many pogroms and persecutions have arisen in response to this film? On Good Friday, I searched the ADL site in regards to the film. There's 12,600,000 results. Not one of them! cites a single pogrom or persecution that's risen in response to this film. But weren't we supposed to believe that just by watching this movie, some sort of bloodbath would break out, some terrible persecution of the Jews was imminent? Now, Abraham Foxman is a very intelligent man. He wouldn't have been in that position otherwise. So what's really going on with statements like that? That's not a dumb question. What's really at stake here? Was he really worried about a persecution breaking out in response to the passion? Does that make any sense at all? Just think about that. Now before we leave Mr. Fox behind, please keep him in your prayers. As he tells us in his autobiography, and I quote, I learned how to pray with the rosary and kneel at the altar of the church, close quote, Abraham Foxman. His baptismal name is Henrik Stanislaus. He needs your prayers. He needs them. Okay, so what's really going on here? Let's bring the actual issues at stake into focus by considering an article found in Ruth Sheva. That's the Israel National News. It's March 1st, 2004. Quote, The Orthodox Jewish Union has prepared a response to the controversial, anti-Semitic, and violence-saturated film, The Passion. Rabbi Dr. Sivi Hirsch Weinreb stated, quote, What I'm concerned about is that Jews who see this film will identify deeply with Jesus. The movie's heroic good guy and will disidentify with their own God-given identity as the Jewish people. Close quote. There you have it. The rabbi is being honest, unlike Abe Foxman. He's being honest. He's worried about the passion precisely because of the possibility it would promote conversions. It would bring people's attention to Christ our Lord. That's what's really going on here with these attacks. Once we see that, we realize that all these attacks during Holy Week are really, or Christmas are really concerned with one thing and one thing only. Keeping people away from Christ and His church. Nothing has changed. 
These kind of attacks by the devil and his minions, by the mortal enemies of Christ, are nothing new. It's been the same old story right from the beginning. We can see it in the scriptures. The gospel for the fourth week of Lent tells a story of after Lazarus had laid dead in the tomb for four days, our Lord raised him from the dead. And a response to this miracle, in John chapter 11 and verse 45, the gospel tells us, quote, Many therefore of the Jews, who had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. Close quote, inspired inerrant word of God. Many of the Jews therefore who had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. It's not surprising they believed in him. Our Lord had spent three years teaching the people, making statements like, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. You believe in God, believe also in me. My doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. Our Lord is very clearly claimed to be God. And then he's backed up those claims with miracles. Astounding miracles, like raising Lazarus from the dead. And so the people have come to believe in him. But what was the response of the Jewish leadership to this incredible miracle of raising a man from the dead? This astounding miracle that was done only a few miles from Jerusalem. We have the answer recorded in John chapter 11 and verse 47. Quote, The chief priests, therefore, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What do we do? For this man doth many miracles. Close quote. Note well what they say. The chief priests and the Pharisees say that this man doth many miracles. They knew he did miracles. This was no surprise to them. The leaders had known our Lord was a miracle worker right from the very beginning. Right from the very beginning. They had known right at the beginning of his public ministry, just after our Lord had turned water into wine. Because one of the rulers of the Jews, a prominent uh, Pharisee named Nicodemus, told our Lord, quote, Rabbi, we know that thou art come a teacher from God. For no man could do these signs which thou dost, unless God be with him. Close quote. We know that thou art come a teacher from God. This is in the very beginning of his public ministry. The leaders knew he was sent from God. The leaders knew this, but they weren't looking for a Messiah like this. No, thank you very much. They expected to rule and rule absolutely, but that wasn't his message. Here he was, eating with sinners, talking to Samaritans, even helping swine, the goyim, like the pagan uh, Canaanite woman and the Roman soldier. All this stood in stark contrast to this tyrannical caste structure they had imposed on society. And to make matters even worse, he didn't hesitate to perform miracles or heal people on the Sabbath, in direct contradiction to their oppressive rules and teaching. They were not looking for a Messiah like this. His behavior absolutely enraged them. They couldn't deny his miracles. The best they could come up with in their hatred and their rage and their envy was to claim that he got his powers from the devil. They went so far to accuse him of being possessed. He casts out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Do we not say, well, that thou art a Samaritan, hast a devil? But in the face of his personality teaching miracles, these blasphemies didn't stick. The people still kept falling. And now, just outside Jerusalem, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. 
So leaders call the council and ask, quote, What do we do for this man doth many miracles? If we let him alone so, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. One of the name, Caiaphas, being the high priest of that year, prophesied that Jesus should die for the sins of the nation. And not only for the nation, but to gather together into one the children of a God that were dispersed. From that day, therefore, they devised to put him to death. And the chief priest thought to kill Lazarus also, because many of the Jews, by reason of him, believed in Jesus. Close quotes. So they're losing their following. They've tried to destroy our Lord's reputation, but that didn't work. So now they've settled on the final solution. Destroy our Lord himself. Kill him. And then kill Lazarus. Destroy the evidence. Now stop and consider how insane the Jewish leadership has gotten by this point. Obviously, if our Lord raised Lazarus from the dead once, he can do it again. He's shown he has power over death. They're dealing with someone who has power over death. Even though they have a pretty clear idea of just who he is, even though they have a pretty clear idea of just what he can do, their minds have been so darkened by hatred, rage, and envy, they want to kill him. We don't want a Messiah like you. We don't want a God like you. We don't want a king like you. We have no king but Caesar. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, he falls into their hands. And they pour out their hatred and fury on him and manage to successfully manipulate the Romans into crucifying him. And even after he died on the cross, the Romans, with their typical military efficiency, had made absolutely sure he was dead by piercing his heart with the thrust of a lance. So our Lord was dead. There's no possible doubt about that. And the Jewish leaders had seen his dead body laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But think about this. Even though the leaders had clearly seen our Lord dead and laid in the tomb, they were still so worried about him that they had taken incredible precaution of having the temple sealed and posting a guard around it. The Jewish leaders had a military guard posted at a grave site just to make sure the dead man inside that grave didn't escape. Guards to make sure a dead man doesn't break out of his tomb. But that Easter Sunday, the tomb was empty. And the Jewish leaders knew what had happened. They knew exactly what had happened. In fact, the empty tomb left them scrambling to find an explanation to deny the obvious. And the very best they could come up with, the very best, was to bribe the guards to testify that while they were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. As St. Augustine asked, how is this? You call on witnesses that are asleep? How can you witness something when you're asleep? And so the best thing that the Jewish leaders could do was to ask everybody to believe that sleeping men had watched a crime being committed. That's ridiculous enough. But think about this. Why didn't they then order an investigation to find out which of the disciples were guilty of grave robbery? They were so concerned about the situation, they actually posted a guard at a tomb, a tomb that had been sealed. And now the tomb is empty. Why don't they order an investigation to find the body? Because they knew what had happened. They knew what had happened, and the very best response they could give was this pathetic lie that falls apart 
in face of even the slightest scrutiny, and then they simply ignored the empty tomb. But they knew what had happened. Everyone around there knew what had happened. The great Jewish historian Flavius Josephus himself was a Pharisee from a distinguished uh, family of Jewish priests. He's born in 37 AD, only three years after, four years after these events. Says, quote, Jesus was a doer of incredible things and the teacher of such as gladly accepted the truth. He thus attracted to himself many Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. On the accusation of the leading men of our people, Pilate condemned him to death on the cross. Nevertheless, those who had previously loved him still remained faithful to him. For on the third day, he appeared to them alive again, just as the divine prophets had foretold. And at the present day, the tribe of those who call themselves Christians after him has not ceased. Close quote, Flavius Josephus. Quadratus. Well, wait. As everybody knows, and everyone around there knew, on Easter Sunday, our Lord wasn't the only one who rose from the dead. In chapter 27 and verse 52 of his gospel, St. Matthew points out, quote, Many bodies of saints that had slept arose, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, came into the holy city and appeared to many. Close quote, the inspired errant word of God. So you had many others that resurrected on Easter Sunday too. At the earthquake, their tombs were opened, and then Easter Sun on Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday they resurrected from the dead. Quadratus, he's one of the earliest fathers of the church, in a work that was presented at Emperor Hadrian in the early second century, wrote about these men. I quote: "Those who were cured by our Savior and those he raised from the dead were seen not only while being cured and while being raised." They were ever-present, not only when our Savior dwelt among us, but also for a considerable time after he departed. In fact, some of them have survived to our own time. Close quote. Some had survived their own time. Living, visible proof. Men who had first met our Lord in the limbo of the fathers and been resurrected by him and with him on that first Easter, we're still walking around in the Middle East decades after his ascension into heaven. And everyone around there knew this. The Jewish leaders knew what had happened. Everyone around there knew what had happened. So why do they want to ignore the empty tomb, even though they know what had happened? For the same reason they want to ignore his other miracles. For the same reason they ignored his teachings. For the same reason they wanted to blame his works on the devil. For the same reason they wanted to kill him. Because the implications were so painful and so costly to consider. We've grown used to the idea maybe. But stop and think about this incredible event that we're celebrating today. A dead man, by his own will and by his own power, raised himself up from the dead. Lifted himself up from the grave into a new and glorified body. A dead man, by his own power, raised himself up. By, by uh, performing this miracle on himself, and by his own power, Jesus has proven his claim to be the Messiah and the true Son of God. And that is exactly why the implications are so painful and so costly for the Jewish leaders to consider. The resurrection proves his claims to be the God the Son. By raising himself from the dead, 
by his own power, Jesus proves that he's the Messiah and the true Son of God. And that means that since God cannot deceive us, everything, absolutely every single thing that our Lord taught must be true. All of it. That's the significance of Easter. And accepting, of course, Our Lady, since we're all weak and sinful men, the reality that everything our Lord says is absolutely true can be painful. Because the Gospel makes demands. And they're real demands. Our Lord doesn't say to us, hey, let's make a deal. You can do whatever you want, as long as you're basically a nice person. Our Lord doesn't say, let's make a deal. Our Lord says, this is the deal. This is the deal. If you love me, keep my commandments. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And come follow me. So it's black and white. Our Lord has divided the world into two. There's only two camps. Lovers of the cross of Christ and the enemies of the cross of Christ. That's it. It's cut and dry. On Judgment Day, we're each going to have our own Easter. Each one of us is going to rise from the dead. Each one of us is going to be called up from the tomb. Each one of us better ask himself, on that day, where will I find myself? With the sheep? With the goats? Which camp am I in? Am I keeping the commandments? Am I in the state of grace? Where will I find myself on that day? The tomb was empty. Christ has risen from the dead. And someday, so will we.